Welcome back to another Ghosts of the Pacific edition of Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 115, Ernie Pyle's War, Part 3. Last week, Ernie and Jerry Pyle married and spent a summer touring the United States. Both fell in love with the American Southwest, particularly Arizona and New Mexico. After roughly a decade in the newspaper business, Pyle was made editor-in-chief of the Washington Daily News and for three years worked long and hard, was good at his job, and hated every minute of it. It also began to put a major strain on his marriage. In time, circumstances allowed him to pitch the idea of a roving reporter where he would travel around the Western Hemisphere and write a daily column on what he saw and who he encountered. This proved highly successful and he and Jerry basically lived out of suitcases, their car, and myriad hotel rooms for the next seven years and exponentially increased the stress on an already strained relationship. As things came to a breaking point in 1940, Pyle finally got permission to travel to Britain, against Jerry's wishes, and report on the Nazi air blitz against that island, which is where we will pick up Pyle's story today. When he arrived in a small coastal town on December 9, 1940, he was instantly enamored with the country. Despite the cold drizzle, he was immediately charmed by the gabled buildings, the language of the signs, the many smoking chimney pots. He said, It was a picture from a Dickens novel, the England of fiction, so peaceful, neat, and secure. I had not been ashore three minutes before I was in love with England and its lovely, courteous people. He immediately set out for London, seeking personal experiences of war. He spent his first three weeks in country exploring the city and writing articles to help the folks back home experience what he was seeing, but he was afraid his columns were suffering from a lack of feeling. On December 28th, he wrote to his editor at the News that while he was doing great, I haven't been able to get emotional about anything I've seen. For that reason, I feel the columns are dull. I am enjoying it over here, but may change my tune as soon as the first bomb goes off outside my window. He didn't have to wait long for emotion or bombs. He experienced both the very next night. On the night of December 29, 1940, 130 German bombers attacked London in one of the largest incendiary raids of the war. Awake and working in his hotel room, Pyle heard them coming, heard the quick bitter firing of the guns, and the boom, crump, 
crump, crump of heavy bombs at their work of tearing buildings apart. The Savoy Hotel, where he was staying, had a fine basement bomb shelter, but Pyle did not head there. Instead, he gathered a few friends and went to a high balcony, affording a view of one-third of London's skyline. He stayed there for hours, watching as nearly 2,000 separate fires roared throughout the city, the worst of them in the neighborhoods around the historic dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. His description of the scene, written the next day and sent by cable for publication, Amid the din of airplane engines, Pyle and his friends gazed from their high perch into dark space where whole batches of incendiary bombs fell. We saw two dozen go off in two seconds. They flashed terrifically, then quickly simmered down to pinpoints of dazzling white, burning ferociously. These white pinpoints would go out one by one as the unseen heroes of the moment smothered them with sand. But also, while we watched, other pinpoints would burn on, and soon a yellow flame would leap up from the white center. They had done their work. Another building was on fire. Directly in front of Pyle, the largest of the fires sent flames hundreds of feet high. Pinkish-white smoke ballooned upward in a great cloud, and out of this cloud there gradually took shape, so faintly at first that we weren't sure we saw correctly, the gigantic dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's was surrounded by fire, but it came through. It stood there in its enormous proportions, growing slowly clearer and clearer the way objects take shape at dawn. It was like a picture of some miraculous figure that appeared before peace-hungry soldiers on a battlefield. The streets below us were semi-illuminated from the glow. Immediately above the fires, the sky was red and angry, and overhead, making a ceiling in the vast heavens, there was a cloud of smoke all in pink. Up in that pink shrouding, there were tiny, brilliant specks of flashing light, anti-aircraft shells bursting. After the flash, you could hear the sound. Up there, too, the barrage balloons were standing out as clearly as if it were daytime, but now they were pink instead of silver. And now and then, through a hole in that pink shroud, there twinkled incongruously a permanent, genuine star, the old-fashioned kind that has always been there. Following this night came column after column where Pyle described the particulars of British fortitude. In his book, Ernie Pyle's War, James Tobin writes, Repeatedly, Pyle addressed the two questions that loomed large in American minds that winter. Would the British cave in under pressure like the French? And if not, had the Blitz done so much damage that Britain was already all but beaten? His answer to both was an emphatic no, though he did admit that many British cities had suffered immense destruction. Back home, his column gained more national notice than ever before. A British news correspondent in New York City sent a portion of Pyle's report about fire back to London to be reprinted there, and Time magazine also reprinted the story saying, 
Until last week, Ernie Pyle, an inconspicuous little man with thinning reddish hair and a shy pixie face, was not celebrated as a straight news reporter, but from a hotel room high above Britain's blazing capital, Pyle last week sent one of the most vivid, sorrowful dispatches of the war. Letters began coming in, telling Pyle this was the greatest reporting of his career and that his writing was the talk of the country. Of course, all this recognition unnerved him so much that he sent a cable to Jerry telling her in part, It gives me stage fright so bad I've hardly been able to write a line since. Pyle returned home from Europe in March 1941, to the home he and Jerry had recently purchased in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and hoped that there he would be able to write his last few columns about England in relative peace. But in this, he was mistaken. Day in and day out, people stopped by hoping to talk to, or at least shake hands with, the now more famous than ever Ernie Pyle. He had to flee his new home and get a hotel room just to get any writing finished. He hadn't left the war completely behind, though. A publisher decided to collect Pyle's columns into a book titled Ernie Pyle in England. He wrote two new pieces, one to serve as an introduction and the other as an epilogue. He agreed to this book because he wanted to reinforce to the American public what the Brits were going through standing up to the Nazis, even if he knew, much to his chagrin, the book would make him even more famous. After he wrapped up his columns on Britain, Pyle had to return to his regular writing, but after London, the thought of dredging up domestic stories was more dismal than ever. After the beauty and terror of London, he found roving around pretty tame. This also left him and Jerry next to no time to work on their strained relationship. Upon Pyle's return home, Jerry told him she had been soul-searching and that she wanted to have a child. Numb to the idea, he could only respond with bewilderment. Several weeks later, she made an ineffectual gesture toward suicide by turning on the gas in her new kitchen. They were back to where they had been before Pyle had left for England. Jerry tottering at the edge of a precipice, Ernie physically and emotionally spent, yet chained to a job that pulled him relentlessly forward. That summer, Jerry suffered her worst episode yet a colossal drinking spree that left her close to death from a gastric hemorrhage. Doctors told Pyle that if she continued to drink like this, she wouldn't last long, and she now needed constant care, yet Jerry refused to enter a sanitarium. Ernie was granted a three-month leave of absence from September to December, but this too failed to bring about change. Jerry suffered one relapse after another, and Ernie suffered near-constant stress and worry. As his furlough was coming to an end, he planned another escape and looked to plan his longest bit of travel yet. Jerry was even supportive this time. He wanted to write about the Far East and planned a trip to the Philippines, China, Burma, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, Australia, 
and maybe another stop in England. Just before he left, however, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Like everyone else, Pyle knew the attack had just changed the world, but little did he know to the extent it would change his world specifically. When he heard a rumor that two Japanese aircraft carriers were somewhere off the California coast near San Francisco, he hopped in his car and drove the 1,100 miles or 1,800 kilometers to see for himself. When nothing materialized of that story, he wandered the west coast from San Diego to Seattle and back again, struggling to write lackluster columns and drinking heavily. His mood was a constant mix of lethargy and fatalism. When the U.S. government rationed the rubber he so desperately needed for the tires on his long road trips, he assumed he would be drafted next and couldn't make himself feel anything about that prospect one way or the other. That same void of emotions carried over to his marriage. In the words of James Tobin, Perhaps he believed he had walked the extra mile for Jerry during his leave of absence from the paper, and that when this final effort to restore her stability failed, his duty to her had finally expired. More likely, his sense of marital loyalty simply buckled under the weight of depression and loneliness. He sought companionship in the arms of other women and began several brief but intense affairs though he found no comfort there either. In April 1942, Ernie and Jerry divorced. The next day, Pyle tried to enlist in the Navy, but was rejected for being too small. He was about to approach the Army when his editor wrote a letter pleading with him to start writing his column again. He began by saying, the worth of what you are doing is something you can't fully sense. Then speaking about Japanese advances in the Pacific and Germany seemingly on the verge of conquering the Soviet Union, this was followed by, With most everything you read, it's war and slaughter and tragedy and fear of what may come. Those writers that can do what you do are rare. You are a comfort to many thousands of readers in a time of turmoil and mental misery. He concluded by lamenting how things had ended between Pyle and Jerry, saying, You have done and will do everything that can be done about Jerry. Beyond that, you can't go. Don't let the problem get you down and wreck your life. If you were just one person, a non-entity, it wouldn't make a considerable difference in the large scheme of things if your life was wrecked or not. But you are not just one person. You have a job to do that transcends Ernie Pyle and affects the lives and happiness of many more people than you or I will ever fully realize. This impassioned plea, and a few others like it from other people, 
found Pyle at the lowest point of his life and did not move him to action. Much to everyone's surprise, Ernie passed the Army Physical, but before he enlisted, he decided that Army life probably wouldn't suit him, so he began looking for another reporting trip to Britain, this time to write about U.S. soldiers over there preparing for war. He continued agonizing over Jerry and living with a foreboding of his future when his next European assignment was approved and he caught a flight to Ireland. The plan was for him to spend four months abroad, return home, and then receive a commission as an officer in Army Air Corps Intelligence. Two weeks after he left, Jerry's sister finally convinced her to check into a sanatorium for some professional help with her drinking and mental state. Pyle did not feel the same sense of purpose or excitement during this second trip. The blitz had ended, so there were no more air raids to observe and write home about. It took him two full weeks to work up the energy to write any columns at all. In the meantime, he mostly sat alone in a Dublin hotel room playing solitaire. When he made it over to London, he found himself playing pool more than reporting partly because there wasn't an American aspect to the war to report on yet, just a bunch of soldiers, sailors, and flyers training under gray, sodden skies. On August 3rd, 1943, he wrote to his editor back at the news, Today is my birthday. Just a broken-down, washed-up 42-year-old. Wonder if I'll ever be 43, and if so, why? He also began writing Jerry. Though it seemed like there was no war on, Pyle did get out and meet many of the American military men training in England. He also made many contacts in the auxiliaries that supported the combat troops, Army Intelligence, the Red Cross, and British and American information agencies. When he did begin writing in earnest, he returned to the same folksy stories he had been writing before, just now with a military bent. He described homely touches in the U.S. Marine barracks in London, beer cans made into bed lamps and stars painted on a ceiling to resemble a night sky. He wrote about soldiers' eating habits, they were grousing about the monotony of British food, and they generally lost weight for their first few weeks in camp. About their health... The rate of venereal disease was only two-thirds what it had been at home. And about relations with the Brits, who were a little taken aback by our loud boisterousness and our speed, both in driving cars and in getting an arm around a girl, but who seemed to enjoy it and be getting used to it, and it's, quote, only the snobbish minority who turn up their noses. This sort of writing was exactly what the folks back home who had boys over there wanted to read. This was reinforced to Pyle by the number of soldiers he met who showed him clippings of his columns relative stateside had cut out and sent back for their soldiers to read. 
When his four months were up, he received his draft board's decision that he was being allowed to stay over at least another six months before returning to begin his own service. The news from Jerry was also good. She had left the sanitarium and returned to Albuquerque in good spirits and good health and was taking classes to prepare for a civil service job. She was living in a cottage on the grounds of St. Joseph's Hospital and spending much of her time around the nuns there. Despite Jerry's atheism, these women succeeded in brightening her outlook where all others had failed. This news brought much joy to Ernie, or at least as much joy as he could manage to have. In September 1942, Pyle received a highly improper tip something the military today would call an OPSEC, or Operational Security, violation, that he might want to head to Northern Africa for a while, so he warned his editor that he might just do that in November. I don't know much, and I can't tell you what I do know, so you'll just have to trust my judgment on the proper time to go, if at all. On November 8th, U.S. forces landed in Morocco and Algeria. Two days later, Pyle secured passage on a ship and arrived in Oran, Algeria, on November 23, 1942. The Americans had finally gone to war. Operation Torch was the first Allied assault against Hitler from the West and the baptism of American troops on the Atlantic side of the war. Torch had two military purposes, to bring the French North African troops currently loyal to the German-controlled Vichy French government over to the Allies' side, and to seize key ports in the region on the heels of British victory at El Alamein in Libya. It also had two political objectives, to allow President Franklin Roosevelt to boast of an early American strike against Hitler and to satisfy Prime Minister Winston Churchill's desire to wear down the Axis with strikes on its periphery before jumping straight onto the European continent. With that in mind, most of the French North African forces quickly switched to the Allies' side, but between the U.S. troops and experience and veteran German reinforcements rushed over from other locations, it was difficult for the Allies to seize the terrain they were after. By December, Allied hopes for a painless success in Africa were dashed, and both sides prepared for a protracted winter campaign. By the time Pyle arrived in Africa, a dozen or so U.S. reporters had already moved to the front lines, but they were having a difficult time sending stories back to be published. Seeing this, Pyle stayed away from the front for a short time to build up a reserve of stories to be published in case he also couldn't send back dispatches, but then planned to move forward and spend at least a month at the front. While doing this, he passed the time with rear echelon soldiers and army censors, and by doing that, he accidentally broke the first big news story to come out of Africa since the initial invasion. Returning to James Tobin's words, In the early weeks of the Allied occupation of French Algeria, one of the army's trickier tasks was to maintain civil authority. 
For expediency's sake, control was ceded to former officials of the Vichy administration, who were generally understood to be collaborators at best and proto-Nazis at worst. This unseemly business was obvious to American reporters, but any who tried to write about it were rebuffed by the censors, who judged the material too embarrassing for disclosure in the United States. Certainly it was not Ernie's sort of story. But at dinner one night, some acquaintances in the Army Counterintelligence Corps, unhappy with the coddling of French fascists, dumped the whole tale on him and nudged him to write about it. At about the same time, he heard from some newly arrived sailors that people at home think the North African campaign is a cakewalk, that our losses have been practically nil, that the French here love us to death, and that all the German influence has been cleaned out. Seized by an uncharacteristic spasm of indignation, Ernie pounded out two pointed columns. To puncture overconfidence at home, he stated flatly that America's green, undersupplied troops would need months, not weeks, to match the fighting capacity of their German opponents. As for the disciplining of French collaborators, our fundamental policy is still of soft-gloving snakes in our midst. The loyal French see this and wonder what manner of people we are. They are used to force and expect us to use it against the common enemy, which includes the French Nazis. Our enemies see it, laugh and call us soft. Both sides are puzzled by a country at war which still lets enemies run loose to work against it. It was one thing to type up such a story in an Algerian hotel room, but quite another to ship it intact to American newsrooms. Every dispatch was checked by army censors in Africa and again in the United States, yet somehow Ernie's column penetrated both screens and was published as written, causing a minor uproar at home. If Pyle knew how this feat was managed, he never said. Possibly some in the army, frustrated by U.S. policy, pulled strings to have the story exposed. Certainly, Ernie enjoyed chummy relations with the local censors. Still, it seems doubtful that a censor would have risked his rank to give Ernie a break. More probable is an unattributed account. The censor responsible, accustomed to Ernie's innocuous fare, read, By Ernie Pyle, at the top of the page, yawned and affixed his stamp of approval without reading the piece. Just before he made his way to the front, a homesick pile conferred with an army lawyer about remarrying Jerry by proxy. He then wrote her a letter saying that it wouldn't bring him home any quicker, but, quote, Somehow I know I'd feel happier about things. When he failed to get a reply in a timely manner, he decided it was past time that Ernie Pyle head to the front lines, which is where we will pick up the story next week. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. Thank you.